This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, and so much more with me, Adam Smith. Very few things get people fired up more than the safety of children. This is why the far right has been using our schools as morality battlegrounds for generations. From protecting the Southern way of life to burning books and raging against the myth of grooming by woke left the outreach playbook has worked in America for generations, especially when it applies to our kids. Today, many educators are having to choose between their oath and their career, with more and more choosing to leave their calling in the classroom. Often, those that leave are the very best that our public education system has to offer. This couldn't be more true than with today's guest, the 2022 Kentucky Teacher of the Year, Willie Carver. Willie has spent his entire life dedicated to student success. He gained a bachelor's in French and English at Moorhead State University, where he focused his studies on advocacy for students, particularly first-gen, Appalachian, and minoritized. Most recently, he gained a double-endorsed MAT in French and English, dedicating over a decade to teaching in Kentucky high schools and universities, where he created LGBTQ-inclusive spaces. In 2022, Willie was given the honor of being named the Kentucky Teacher of the Year and ambassador to the Kentucky Department of Education, where he created a platform of inclusion and advocacy for LGBTQ, BIPOC, and Appalachian students. He has been published in multiple magazines and newspapers and featured on a wide range of news outlets. Willie left the classroom in 2022 when, as an openly out teacher, he faced anti-gay pressure and is now a professional academic advisor at the University of Kentucky. Willie, I'm honored you chose to get uncomfortable with us. Welcome. You you were talking about that it threatens people's children and people are protective of their children, but people don't understand you know, I lived in the deep, deep, deep South, makes Kentucky look Northern, right? Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and sat in churches, black churches, where people talked about being gay and talked about being queer in a really, really homophobic, um, indictful way. And I remember saying to the pastor afterwards, as a guy who has a degree from a Lutheran university in theology, pastor, none of that is in scripture. What are you doing? This, this is the kid's home. Do you know the suicide rate of black queer, black questioning, black trans kids? He said, well, Brother Smith, you know, I'm old school. You're going to have the. What are you doing? Well, and the, and, thing, the, the irony that they think they're old school when they're really pretty new school. Um, they, they're I always say Appalachians think that queerness is a threat to Appalachia, but queerness predates Appalachia. And this this intense fear of homophobia is relatively new. Um, you know, it's not as like the, the church treated it like a lot of other things before. This is this is how I'm, I'm seeing this groomer thing happen. You know, there I remember being a kid. I remember hearing and I think as, as a queer person. I was very um, I was much more likely to retain it consciously. But, you know, that, those were things that were being said in the 80s. 
that the gay men were out to harm children, et cetera, et cetera. I remember that because I remember thinking, I guess I'm a monster. And it didn't even occur to me at some points that I was even gay because I thought, well, gay is a monster and I don't think I'm a monster. Therefore, I'm not gay, even if I'm gay. David Sedaris writes about, I don't remember the, the which book it's in, but he writes about um, being really frustrated. He goes to speak at a college. They put him in a really crappy hotel and he's sitting and feeling sorry for himself in a hotel room. And he decides, okay, I need to change perspective. I need to touch grass. So he walks out of the room and sees a kid trying to pour like six coffees, like maybe a 10 year old boy. And he goes, okay, I'm going to do something good for somebody and stop feeling sorry for myself. So he goes to help him. And then he realizes shit. Um, I'm an adult man, I'm a gay man, and I'm standing with this kid I don't know. And then he's like, and now I'm walking with him holding coffees. So like he has this entire inner monologue of fear about how people will perceive it. Um, and the story sort of evolves as he follows the boy to the room and then the parents take the coffee and no one cares. But he felt this intense fear that a lot of gay people probably older than 40 feel around kids because they were made to um, feel that way. Keith Elston, who is the um, lead legal uh, person for the Kentucky Youth Law Project that I work with, he invented the Kentucky Youth Law Project because he realized older gay men are terrified of children because they're afraid that someone will make this accusation. And so no one ever helps LGBTQ children because no one knows how to. And the people who can speak to them are afraid to speak to them. Um, so I think what's making this resonate with conservatives is somewhere subconsciously, they remember hearing these things as kids. Um, it triggers an old belief. And I think, you know, when we talk about how we see racist tropes, for example, reinvigorated and and played out in a, in a, in a seemingly new way, but it's the exact same thing. It's the same trope that somehow a black man is going to harm a white woman, right? We see this played out over and over and over again, and they keep inventing new ways to do it. And this is the new way that they're doing it. Um, and it just so happens that they can attack education with it, which is handy for them because they want to privatize it. Well, and because people people will defend their kids at all costs. The mama yeah. bears come out, right? We mm -hmm. don't want to make my kids feel bad because yeah. they hear that Thomas Jefferson wasn't a hero. He's a rapist. Yeah. Right. We don't want to make my kids feel bad because mm -hmm. they hear that Thanksgiving isn't real. Yeah. The entire writing of CRT was the same thing. It was this, that somehow white children uh, feel are harmed if we speak truth to the black experience. Well, and that's where the whole Florida project comes in, where you you attack APFM history courses. Well, we know in America, mm -hmm. 85 to 90 percent of people in AP courses are not people of color and are not mm -hmm. Appalachian. Yeah. The reality is they're wealthy white kids. And that's the fear. That's the fear is that we have the scales fall from the eyes of the private school wealthy white kid mm -hmm. who then doesn't become a voter for the crazy, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about, because we talked about, you know, every state, not just Kentucky. And I think mm -hmm. people who live in Kentucky feel like, you know, every state is trying to be the new Florida and has these uh, factions and you know, I was telling a friend of mine, matter of fact, I was telling my mom this the other day, is that it's not going to be free states and non-free states. It's going to be free counties and non-free counties mm -hmm. because Minneapolis and the Twin Cities Metro is the progressive. But the rest of the state miles will be North Dakota. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the views in the rest of the state are basically the same as North and South Dakota views. The reality is this t- Minneapolis-St. Paul metro is just so big mm-hmm. that it creates some voting blocks. Talk a little bit about why you choose to stay. Because you haven't just stayed in Kentucky, you stayed in your rural Kentucky town, right? You didn't move to Lexington, where the university is, where it's bright blue, or Louisville, where it's blue as well. You've stayed in your home, in your home community, despite leaving the schools, despite some of the politics there that may not be as open to your same beliefs or um have the the legislation where some of that legislation may be even coming out of you know i'm glad that we're having i would we're having this question right now i just came out of a meeting um with an organization that i work with and i was it was a national level meeting and we had someone from the one of the largest maybe the largest lgbtq organization that exists at this meeting and someone asked the question so i'm one of a handful of rural people in this meeting. I'm specifically there because I'm rural and Southern um, and queer. And so someone said, how do we help LGBTQ people in Southern Midwestern rural places? And this person living in Los Angeles responded by talking to them about how we're going to have some resettlement. We're going to see people leaving these states and we need to prepare for these people in our communities. And that was the answer. That was it. And I was like, you are so self-centered. And I don't say that in the rudest way possible, but you are so thinking about this from your perspective that you're answering about how you should answer to make your life work better or how your immediate surroundings. And so I had to, I had to leave uh, that meeting actually to come here, but I, I left them with a page of text that I left in the chat saying, like, here's what we need. You need to support ground uh ground level organizations in these places. You need to actually seek them out. You need to give them support, including financial support, um, because not everyone's going to be able to afford to leave. Um, you know, there's going to be five people who leave and 95 who stay. So in part, it's because no one else seems to be doing this work and someone else, someone has to do it. Um, but I think the other part is what I see is people who are doing this work in such beautiful and loving ways where I am that it inspires me more. Um, I could sit in a room with people using buzzwords and talking about theoretical displaced Southerners, or I could be planning a you know three-day drag show in my own town that gives money for books, or I could work with people with creative solutions. I feel like the um, what I'm finding is that the people here who want to change things because they see the immediacy of the call are thinking in more interesting, imaginative and inspiring ways. And frankly, that's just something I want to be a part of. So a good example, uh, my former students won a $10,000 grant and they, they actually earmarked $4,000 for books with Black, Indigenous, people of color, and LGBTQ characters, because they said, we really don't have those. We have a, a smattering of books, and it's mostly straight and white. And they they did a video entry for it. It was really beautiful. And they won. So they had $4,000 in books coming. Um, to When I left the school, I knew I can't give the school the money or they will spend it on football. So... Uh, I had the money parked in a nonprofit who agreed to let me manage it and they would hold it. And I actually worked with the state library lead to curate 
an appropriate young adult list of books with black and queer characters. And we sent the book to the school district or the list and said, you may change any title you want. If you'll just give us some time, let us know if any of these don't work for you, we'll replace them. They rejected all of them, every single book. And because I'm here where I am, I immediately called one person who runs an art center who said, oh, honey, we're, we're, we're going to make a rainbow library then. And so I called someone else who owns a local bookstore, Coffee Tree Books, and they were like, oh, my God, this happened. We want to contribute. We will we will give you an additional 25 percent buying power for anything you buy for this project. So, you know, that just became a 25 percent of four thousand plus four thousand dollar project. Um, then we had some well-off people in town who were concerned about poor kids not getting access to the books. So they said, okay, we will make some grants so that if any kid can't physically come, you can mail them for free uh, to their home. And it, it took a matter of days. Uh, oh, and then of course, some local drag queens were like, let's put on a giant drag show and then buy more books. So, you know, when you, when we're thinking like this, when when we're not just fighting, but being hopeful because we can't afford not to be hopeful, um, you generate the kind of energy that can just do tremendous and incredible things. And I would love to see what we're able to do here scaled to New York City, right? Um, that tells me we're doing amazing work. And people, I think, overlook that. When I think it's, as you're talking about the work per capita, yeah, right? That work exists in the Bay Area. It exists mm-hmm. in Chicago and New York. And it's almost like, not there, Oftentimes in places like that, there's a little bit of laziness around, well, somebody else will do it. Yeah, it's pride. I mean, Minneapolis, where I am from, is one of the best prides on the planet. The whole dang city is rainbow. Mm -hmm. The difference is shining that rainbow light in a small rural town. Then all of a sudden, other lights come on. Yeah. Because the part that's the most crazy that I find as a cisgendered straight guy in my privilege is as I was talking about the session we were doing in in Pennsylvania, we never talked about who people loved. We talked about sex and gender. That's it. Because we're trying to explain this to people and train on those pieces. Because none of us know what people do with their own lives. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know who you love. That's your business. That's who God made you to love who you love. Mm -hmm. So this idea that it's grooming isn't even plausible because we only know the people who are openly queer. We don't know the closeted queer folks, Mm -hmm. right? So even if that was a thing, which it's not, that doesn't even compute in my mind Mm -hmm. like the question i wanted to ask about staying rule and we talked we just talked about it is important but the reality is there's a bunch of queer people in a rural town so having willie carver there doing his work and shining that light in that community and making space and being willing to be like thurgood marshall said you see a good fight you get in it Mm -hmm. that's who you're made to be right Mm -hmm. And so that allows other people to be their true selves, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're willing to go first and nothing's going to be like that classroom in the bad way. And so having the whole community and the whole nation as your classroom is important. One of the things that I want to make sure we talk about is your book, Gay Poems for Red States. Love Mm -hmm. it. Recently released. I got a bunch of copies. You got to sign for me. Um, 
talk a little bit about how that came to be, you know, writing poems, writing poetry, writing it in the tone that you wrote it, because you wrote it very relatable for somebody who's from a lower income rural Appalachian area, but you also wrote it being your authentic self. So talk a little bit about how that came to be and some of the reception you've received. Um, one, thank you for for reading it. And um, it's, you know, when I became teacher of the year and they told me I had to have a platform, it immediately occurred to me, like there was not even a question. I was student voice. These students never get to express themselves and what they experience is not articulated at all. Uh, so that I, I did as much work as I possibly could in the year that I had to really elevate um, the importance of student voice and to, to celebrate when I saw it happening. The funny thing about this collection is I sat down to write an angry letter to my superintendent. I'd written many before, uh, but this was going to be the angriest. And instead, I wrote that first poem, was not anticipating it, didn't know it was going to happen. Um, and it sort of took my breath away at first because I was like, what is happening and many, many poems happened. And I think what I later learned is there was a kid in me who held his voice in so that I could survive. Um, he did what he had to do to get me here. And now I'm here. And I think school was always this really safe and beautiful place for him. And he was watching that be ruined. He was watching a school choose to put its own students in danger for the sake of politics. It was watching a life that I had built crumble uh, and watching school now become a very unsafe place for me. And I think he was angry and I think he was hurt. Um, and I think he wanted to remind me what school had been lest I lose it. So he spoke and there were early moments when I was writing and I would look at a line and think, well, and I'm looking at it from some critical, educated eye and say, well, that's a very uh, educated is not even the right word from some eye that has gone through systems that tell it how to see. Um, and it would look at a line and go, well, that's a very emotional line. That's a bit much. Let's erase it. And I specifically have this memory of hovering above the backspace button and having this kid say, don't you dare erase me. Everyone erased me. Don't. Do and. And I said, okay, whatever this is, it's going to be. I will not erase you, kid. Um, and so I sat with him every day, um, and I let him speak. And he remembered everything. He remembered every smell, every sight, every feeling. And he was able to give those to me again. And I was able to process them as an adult in ways that I had not even attempted to process them. And I realized how smart he was. I mean, that the boys, girls to toy dilemma, I mean, that was probably the first moment when I realized that who I was would cause other people um, to respond negatively and that that would cause me pain. And I think he was telling me, you know, this was the story all along. This is what's happening to you right now. Someone is looking at you and they're offended at the toy you're playing with. Um, this has nothing to do with you. So I wrote it and I think as I got older um, and cared and, and was thinking more about myself as an Appalachian, because those aren't terms you think about when you're a kid, you just sort of are. I thought a lot about what it would look like if if my mama wrote poetry, what would it look like if my papa, how can I celebrate the the way that they construct sentences? How can I celebrate the way sounds work for them? Um, and you, what what's beautiful is that 
one of the reception, one of the ways that people have received it, and people have been wonderfully kind. People, so many gay men in pain have written me. And it is an honor to share that pain with them um, because it means that they've processed it out, that they can talk about it. Um, it's been such good recession. But one of the things that people say is I keep having to slow myself down because I'm reading so fast and I'm thinking you're reading in an Appalachian. T- like I, the, 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 I'm breaking these sentences out in such a way to make it be read fast. A good Appalachian storyteller is going to throw so much at you that you can't really hold on to it all. And it gives you a sense of wanting, like, I wish I could hold on to what's happening, but it's just flying past me. Um, and I don't think that they're recognizing that. Uh, some of my cl- some of my classmates early on, not even this poetry, but some of my poetry, have said, "Can you pare it down? I feel like things are flying past me." Um, and I'm like, "No, <laughs> that's the goal. <laughs> you need to acclimate to this art. That's the problem." I hope I answered your question. I don't know. You did. <laughs> it is the book. I think for me is really therapeutic. Is maybe the best words. There's empathy that I can have, but also as a survival of childhood abuse and addiction and all of these pieces, all this stuff, I can feel it in it. And so feeling that kinship with that little boy, because I think about the little boy who is abused all Mm -hmm. the time and giving him voice and giving him space. And sometimes I look at myself in the funhouse mirror and I still see him, right? Yeah. And so I really appreciate you being brave enough not to share that story, his story with others, but to surface that story for yourself, because that takes the courage, right? To walk through all of those things and to be in a place where you can sit with it and see it and then use that tool once you sat with it to Mm -hmm. impact other people. What do you think has been the most surprising thing related to the book that um, other people have said to you, the reception? I know it's done a great job on Amazon. Talk a little bit about that. But what are some of the things that you're most surprised by and inspired by in the lives of others? Two answers, I think. One, it's the number of straight women who have responded so emotionally and their instinct to protect kicks in. Um, And my hope is that they can see this instinct to protect shouldn't be from gay people, but of and around gay people Um, and especially LGBTQ kids. And if I can get them to extend onto queer kids, what they are wanting to extend onto this young queer version of me, um, then I will have done the work I hope to do. Um, when, you know, I love to think about this idea, you know, I'm big and strong and I'm not really, not really afraid of human beings anymore. Not in my, not in my life. I've experienced too much with them. Uh, I recognize the dangers, but I'm not afraid of them. If that distinction is clear. And, um, I was the, you know, the flip side of that was my mom. I was not expecting her. I guess I thought when you're a kid and one of the things that I did a lot was I literally, literally let this kid speak. I had another poet say, or were you intentionally so optimistic at times? These feel 
he said they feel authentic but so sweet it's painful for me and it, not in a not in, he wasn't saying this in aruba he was just saying like it is painful for me to experience something so sweet because it seems against what my experience as a human is but i i recognize it as real and i said you know when i think about cornmeal and water pancakes for example i was not trying to paint some you know happy perfect bucolic experience what i know i was painting was the lived experience of that little boy that little boy didn't understand the socioeconomics of Appalachian poverty. He didn't understand why kids in Cincinnati lived in $200,000 homes and he didn't have electricity. He understood none of that. He understood that his mom was magical and she could turn two ingredients into pancakes. You know, that that was his lived experience. It is realistically him. Um, and when people can empathize with him, they're empathizing with queer kids. Mm. And that's the thing we dare not say. Uh, that is the aspect of LGBTQ rights that people are most uncomfortable with, because even good liberal people, they think of us on sexual terms. That's how they know me. That's how they see a queer person. Um, but my queerness is so much more than that. And their straightness is so much more than that. Um, and we have to we have to start making those circles bigger. Mm. Well, and one of the things that to to leave our conversation that I think I was so inspired by is you talking about how not only is the book one of the top LGBTQ writings on Amazon, but LGBTQ parenting, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's that ministry walk. That's that making space for kids. That means that parents of queer kids or questioning kids are saying, you know what? I need to read this because maybe it will help ground me with that little boy so mm -hmm. that some of the struggles that little boy had aren't the same ones my little boy or girl have. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the victories I can find ways to repeat. Yeah. And, you know, some of those, one of the sayings uh, that queer people have is mothers are always the first and the last to know. Um, they pick up on it really quickly, but what they say are in, in their head is, well, this is not a queer person. This is my child. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they have this limited vision of what a queer person is. And then they can justify their child just by saying, well, my child just likes to paint his nails and he just likes being, you know, frilly or she just likes playing in trees. Um, but what they're really saying is somewhere in the back of their mind, a queer person is a sexual person and my child is my child. And I'm, um, you know, if, if they can process more quickly that your child is not a sexual person in the way that we mean, and your child is your child and your child is queer. If we can get them there, then we've done all kinds of good work. It's humanity, man. Yeah. Willie, thank you for taking the time for anyone who um, will put in the show notes a link to Willie's webpage, as well as to his book, Gay Poems for Red States. Willie Carver, thank you so much for not only your work, but sharing your heart, being patient with the world, being patient with us, but having a commitment as an educator, whether it's educating individual people or groups of people, um, and really being a space maker. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for making this space for me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. 
If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.